0: Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. My guest this week is Michael Broussard, an actor, activist, musician, and artist. His solo show, Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor, uses his own experience to demystify and destigmatize abuse trauma while also giving his audience, which often includes fellow survivors, a chance to ask questions and open up about their own experiences in a safe environment. As you'll hear, it's a show that's grown with its creator both in scope and content and has also branched into the online world during the pandemic, reaching a far wider audience than ever before. We also talk about living with trauma, processing trauma through art, and how Doctor Who fandom gave Michael a desperately needed social outlet, a chance to embody a role model, and more. Trigger warning for sexual abuse. Here's my conversation with Michael Broussard. Michael, welcome to the podcast. It's good
1: to be here. I appreciate
0: you giving me an opportunity to talk about what I do. Ah, you're very welcome. So... I am curious to know how your creative journey started.
1: Well, my creative journey started years before I ever dealt with the fact that I was a survivor. Um, I was in a lot of bands. I wrote a lot of songs, uh, even some about the abuse, but the people in the band didn't realize that was what I was writing about, but that was okay. I was unknown to the people I was in a band with at one point. I was writing a musical about. childhood sexual abuse i kept bringing in these songs and they never put it together and then i got wow. this flyer for the philadelphia fringe festival saying they were looking for new shows and we'd already recorded three of the songs from this piece that i wanted to do and i was like by the way guys these three songs are from a thing i want to do for the fringe just so you know i never recorded them a year ago but that's what they're for and i sent those three songs and i sent them my synopsis and they really like what i wanted to do And I ended up doing a short, it was like 40 minutes musical about sexual abuse and healing. And it was pretty much punk rock, (laughs) a little bit surf. And um, it was incredibly well received. Uh, We had a large following as a band at that point in time. So all those people bought tickets, which was so cool. Um... It was an interesting, a very interesting experience. It was very highly fictionalized because I was still timid about Mm -hmm. telling the truth about what I had been through, you know. So it touched on things, but it didn't really tell my story so much as it told what I was annoyed by. Interesting. And that was the beginning of my creative journey with this particular topic. Um, Like I said, a lot of bands. uh, I've done a lot of writing. Uh, a lot of journalism, a lot of music writing. um But what brought me here, I mean, I did that, that musical years back, maybe 2003. What brought me to what I'm doing now was in 2014. I had been in therapy for a number of years with a trauma-informed therapist for the first time in my life, which was a gigantic difference in terms of what we were able to achieve. And, We've been working on the abuse and on, you know, when you do um, EMDR and they, have you done that? I haven't. It's, a, it's an exercise that involves eye movement and hand movements and taking you back to the things that happened to you and getting to be both the child and the adults who can save you. Ooh. And we had worked so much on that stuff and so much on the abuse. It was the most productive time I ever had in therapy in my entire life. And I got to a point where I felt like I needed to take a step. And I said to my therapist, I want to do a show about all of this we've been talking about. And she says, great. And I said, I also want to make it interactive. I want people to be able to ask me questions, not at the end, but throughout the piece, allow them a voice so we can create a real-time conversation about these topics, which is so important. I said that and she said, oh, my God, but we've worked so hard. Because she was so scared for me because there's so many people out there
2: Mm -hmm. given the
1: opportunity who will knock you down because of what you're talking about. And I said, you know, please trust me. This is the way I process things. I am a performing artist. I have been for many years. This is the way I process things. And she was great about it. Not only did did she (laughs) concede and say, "Okay, we're going to do this. Pretty much, I was able to write the piece split evenly between me walking around the house and talking to myself and uh, therapy. I wrote a lot of it in therapy. And she came to the first performance. It was after she came to the first performance and hugged me afterwards that I discovered that the day I told her I was gonna do this show, she was planning on retiring and she was gonna tell me that. And she put up her retirement. Wow, because she felt I needed her there and it was one of the most generous things I've ever seen in my entire life sure that's amazing that was months that she waited without telling me and the show which is called ask a sex abuse survivor um I started performing it in 2014 in the the uh, solo festival which is a one-man festival or one sorry a single performer festival. I apologize for one man, single performer festival here in Philadelphia. And um, the whole idea of the interaction, I was worried. I was scared. I was also worried about the other thing, which is you say, do you have any comments or questions? And you get crickets. Mm, Yeah. The first break, they were crickets. By the second break, they understood. And we had amazing conversations, delved into things that, you know, I don't normally delve into and weren't part of the show initially, And that became the thing about the show. It changes with every single audience because after the first break, they're going to give you certain comments, certain questions. It's going to cause certain conversations to go around the room. And that's going to affect the way that I do the next thing. So it has never been the same twice. Mm -hmm. And that is incredible. And I toured that for several years and went to colleges and, um, to facilities and to theaters and anything you could think of. And it just, it got better and better. And the show grows because as I encounter something, it gets put into the show. So I know I'm talking long stream here, but real quick, but I want to say one of the things that wonderful things that happened was first time I did it, there's a point in the show where I talk about the first time I was abused. And I say, The first time I had sex, I thought it was a punishment. (gasps) And I tell the story. And a friend of mine, a survivor, walked up to me after the show and said, you know, that's not the first time you had sex. You didn't have sex. You were raped. There's a difference. Next performance. The first time I had sex, I thought it was a punishment. And then I'll tell the story and say, of course, I didn't realize at that point I didn't have sex. I was raped. I was seven years old. I didn't understand that. And it became a moment that it couldn't have been had somebody not walked up to me and Mm -hmm. said this. And that's what's so incredible. And then the pandemic comes along. We can't do in-person anymore. So for a little while, I was a little stymied. And then I said, you know, wait a minute. What I can do is take stuff online and give the platform that I have for telling my story to other people. And so I started Survivor Stories Online, which we do a couple times a month. And uh, people come on and they tell their stories and they get feedback and they talk with each other and they talk with the attendees. And we added the Survivor Meetups where people just come on and just like download them where it's going on in their lives. Um, I started doing interviews with people like yourself who are doing uh, very important things in the community. Um doing profiles of people who run certain organizations or who have taken their stuff to uh, become a, uh, a, a healer or have written a book or whatever, all these things. Now I can reach people, not in that one place I'm in for that performance, but all over the world. We have had people in survivor stories from absolutely everywhere and it is wonderful because everybody comes away going, my God, this was so great. I feel I feel so good. And so many people say it's the first time they ever decided to tell any part of their story. The very first time they open their mouths.
0: I can believe that. It's not, it's not the kind of thing you just throw into casual conversation after all. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's so many things that I want to ask you now, but one of them is how did you discover that performing was part of how you process things?
1: Well, I was drawn to the idea of acting and the idea of music when I was very, very young. Um, I was not aware of a concept like it's how I process things. I was aware of I'm angry, I'm frustrated, and no one's listening to me. And so I started writing, I started drawing. I had fantasies about being in a band, although none of those came true until I was in my (laughs) early 30s and I finally had the guts to do it. Um, Realizing that was the way I processed things. Oddly enough, I think it came to light like pretty much as I was saying it to my therapist, to Dr. Blair. Because I had never thought of, you know, you don't think things through out loud, but you're doing them anyway. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that was true. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, and keep in mind, this is years after i had done that other little musical. And to me, it was just getting it out. Mm-hmm. Um this I, I was like, oh my God, this is the way that I can keep healing. This is the way that I can process, and this is the way that I can better understand myself by understanding other people. You know? Ooh, yeah. And it's oh, the things you get from that are absolutely incredible. You know, I, I've there's a bit that and speaking of processing processing things in the way you process things, there's a bit in the show that is fairly recent of the last couple of years. And uh, the show ends in a different spot now, in a later spot now. One of the things I talk about in the show is the fact that as a child, I am told that before the abuse, I was happy, I was outgoing, I was cheerful, I was silly, I had no fear of anything, and I loved to dance. And I would dance at the drop of a hat. I mean, anything going on, I had an uncle with a band, I'd get up on the bandstand and dance. Because I was six and I had no fear and I had no insecurities. I wasn't looking at myself or inside myself feeling embarrassed. Mm-hmm. When I was seven and the abuse started, that's what I remember. Being closed in, looking at the floor, never talking to anybody above a whisper or not at all, and being terrified of everything. And I did not dance. I didn't remember dancing. As an adult, dancing fills me with a huge amount of anxiety anxiety. I feel like people are looking at me and laughing at me and judging me. And so I was at a doctor who convention. <laughs> imagine and that. Imagine that.
0: <laughs> I should point yeah. out that that's where we
1: met. <laughs> there you go. See, it all comes back. Doesn't it does. So, yeah, I was at, uh, well, you know, Long Island too. In 2017, I think it was, or 2018. It all blends together. Mm-hmm. And. There's a dance at Long Island who every Saturday night they have the, the dance and I don't go to dances because I don't want to dance and make a fool of myself and everybody doesn't like me now and, you know, they're embarrassed to be with me and to be seen with me. I was looking for somebody up and down the halls and people kept telling me he was in the dance and I'm like, uh, uh-uh, because I'm not going in there. And finally, I gave up. I went in there. I found the person I wanted to talk to. I said what I had to say. I turned on my heel and I tried to get the hell out as fast as I possibly could. And a guy I had met earlier at, at a panel that I did yelled out my name from the dance floor. And I'm like, ah. And I turned around and I'm like, hey, yeah, yeah, good to see you. He's like, no, no, come over here. I want to ask you something. Come on. He gets me on the dance floor. And he's like, so why won't you dance for this? And I said, you don't understand. Dancing is terrifying. There's no way I can do this. My, this will activate every one of my triggers. And he's like, yeah, I know, but maybe, you know. And I conceded to basically doing this. <laughs> it's like the smallest amount I could do without moving my body in any way that I could be seen and, and mocked. And as I moved, other people... Came over. I had a moment with this person, a moment with that person. I started moving more. I forgot to be filled with anxiety. I forgot to be terrified. I forgot to be triggered, which sounds bizarre, but in a weird way, I forgot to be triggered. Mm -hmm. And I had that night. And that night changed the outcome of the show. Because now I'm talking about, I don't remember ever being brave enough to dance to. By the way, guess what? I broke that. I smashed through it. I smashed through it, and all of that processing is only possible because I process everything I do through my healing. And sometimes healing is not thinking about things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard not to think about things, but sometimes a moment. I don't know about you, but a moment when I can get today. I didn't actually get triggered by anything for a second or for a minute or I didn't actually get triggered. Because the reality is that um, for me, at least, I don't think there is such a thing as a day when I don't think about it. I don't know know if that'll ever be possible. And I'm not saying this is a sad doom and gloom thing. I'm saying there it is. Mm
2: -hmm. There
1: it is. And I have these tools and I deal with it as I can. And some days I deal with it by staying in bed. And some days I deal with it by getting up and going making music. And sometimes I deal with it by going and, you know, hosting an online event. Some days I deal with it by reading a book, you know, and some days it just, it it overwhelms me, but I don't feel like a failure because of that. I feel like, you know, trauma is deep. Guess what? I'm healing and it's constant. I mean, I'd like to ask you, what do you think about the concept of a healing journey? Is it linear to you? Is it circular to you? What is it?
0: It's not linear, for sure. Whether it's circular or spiral or just, you know, a wild collection of ups and downs is a little bit harder to specify, but it is most definitely not linear.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Which is much like the creative process, honestly.
1: Which is why it works for me. Because you get these sudden inspirations, or you get these sudden triggers, or you get these sudden healing moments. And you're right, like... Have you read the book Slaughterhouse-Five?
0: I know I started it as an undergrad. I don't remember if I ever finished it.
1: The funny thing is you said you started as an undergrad Mm -hmm. is that I didn't go to college because basically we had absolutely zip money. And I used the grant I got to go to business school because that was what I thought people wanted me to do. And I hated it and I left. And I read Slaughterhouse-Five because it seemed like a cool book. I saw it in the the Goddard News. And I went, get this paperback. What's this about? And, of course, the thing about that is the character, the protagonist in it, is unstuck in time. His world is lived basically all the events here, there, everywhere. You know, sometimes three of them are here, sometimes that's over there. Sometimes he's on the moon, whatever. Mm -hmm. That, to me, has been my example for the way I live my life as a survivor. I am unstuck in time. Because I can be anywhere along my timeline at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And it can be abrupt or it can be slow. There's never been a time that the memories of what happened to me aren't with me. They're better managed, but they're with me. Sometimes all of a sudden it's I'm six, well, I can't remember six, never mind. <laughs> uh, I, I'm told good things about me being six, so that's kind of cool. That's the weird thing. Okay. I can't remember six and being comfortable to be outgoing and silly and fun and all that stuff. But I have a couple of weird memories from when I was really little. Like when I was so young that I still thought there was a possibility that I might meet these cartoon characters on the street. Mm -hmm. Like I may have been two. And I really thought that was a possibility and I would dream and I would be with Winnie the Pooh and friends. Right. Because I thought that was a possibility that I can be there. I can be, On that stage, doing that show I did, I can be uh, 14 years old and having a yelling, screaming argument with my mom, because my mom kept telling me, nice people don't talk about that stuff. Why do you want to talk about that stuff? Why don't you just forget it? Nice people don't talk about that stuff. Or her sitting on me and trying to smother me, which was fun, you know. Um, I could be there, or I can be. You know, back when I used to go to conventions in the '80s, I could be back at you know, Who Fest, at, you know, Atlanta or something. You know, um, it's not your. It's not linear, and healing is not linear. And the biggest thing I learned is there's no such thing as I've dealt with that. Now I have to feel bad because I thought about it again. Doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. You did deal with some of it. It's gonna come back. That doesn't mean you failed, because it's a big. It's like to me, it's like thread squished into silly putty. <laughs> it's like, what is this? <laughs> it's just it's it's everywhere all the time, nonstop cabaret.
0: Sure. Well, and the idea that you could just forget it mm-hmm. is mind-boggling to me. Well, it's.
1: I mean, the you've read about the ACEs studies. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about physiological changes, uh, due to the trauma. And you can look at the brain of a non-traumatized and a traumatized child and see a difference. It changes DNA. It changes your, your susceptibility or your vulnerability to certain diseases. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there was this thing for many years that there was the question, you know, somebody happens to be a trauma survivor Okay, they also happen to be bipolar. Okay, they also happen to have chronic fatigue. Okay, they also happen to have fibromyalgia. Okay, but there was no scientific connection. And it was like, is this all incidental and coincidental? And then more recently, they've discovered that this is predictable, Mm -hmm. that this is scientifically provable, that these things are connected together. And they're also connected to things like being more susceptible to cancer being more susceptible to adrenal diseases being more susceptible to you know um i feel very much for my fellow survivors because for many reasons but one because they have the same struggles with uh, the medical community that i have at times where you constantly have to remind doctors that no you're not okay and yes, you were telling the truth when you said you had this or this or this or this. I have a, um, a medication manager. And he's great. hes I mean, that's a rare thing, a great medication manager, because medication <laughs> managers can be evil. Here, what's out new? Take this. Here's nine drugs. Um, he's very much, you only have to take what you feel like taking. And if you don't want to take and you want to stop, we'll stop. it. We'll figure it out. Um, but more recently, in one of the uh, the phone appointments, he said to me, so you're a generally happy person, right? I'm like, we've been together for years. And every time I talk to you, I talk about the days I'm depressed, the days I'm anxious, the days I'm not happy, but wound up and fearful and all of this cycling that I do and all the anxiety. And he's like, you're basically a happy person. I'm like, it's not that I'm unhappy, but, but don't. Don't dismiss my depressive episode. Don't dismiss my <laughs> high anxiety episodes. don't dismiss I'm like but you've been here. We've had these conversations, not mental health uh, doctors but other kinds of you know medical doctors. You can tell somebody I've told somebody you know 20 times uh, about something that I'm dealing with and they'll never remember and they have my notes in front of them and they'll still ask me the same damn questions and be shocked when I tell them. Oh, you're suffering from PTSD. Yeah, doc, I've been telling you that for 20 years. So anyway, so, I mean, that's that's the thing I think that is hard for many of us as survivors is that we work, I'm officially disabled, right? Being disabled doesn't mean I don't work because I am my own personal health advocate. And that is a 24-7 job. Mm-hmm dealing with bills, dealing with trying to connect doctors together so they know what each other are doing, you know, it's a challenge. And we all work very hard to try to navigate these things, you know? And um, what I try to do now, in addition to, you know, giving other people a platform, and I'm, I'm about to do a, a, a an online performance of the show, which is going to be cool, it'll be fun. <laughs> cool and fun. My ideas of cool and fun are different than other people's. <laughs> um, but I try to be 100% public up front with whatever I'm going through because I feel like people need people they can point to and recognize so they feel like they're not you know like like they somebody understands their struggles and somebody is going else is going through them you know we need representation we need to be seen and being 100% public has rewards and it has pitfalls being 100% public makes you one of the people out there. When somebody needs to target someone because they want to shut them down, they go after the visible people. I have had more people go after me. And as recently as a couple days ago, some predator uh, who thought he was doing me a favor, I guess, sent me, spammed my inbox with like four emails detailing how everybody in his family was crazy because they were saying he was a sexual abuser and historical abuse isn't real. And he's like, I know you're probably doing important work, but you must understand that people like me are being falsely accused. First of all, false accusations are as, are as rare as unicorns. We know this. We have data on this. Um, second of all, go away, you skeevy predator. Third of all, yes, I'm up front, but that doesn't mean I'm invulnerable it triggers me. People will send me the most horrible messages on the page. What's really interesting is when people, when I work with certain survivors and their family that wants to shut them down comes after me to tell me that they're crazy and to not listen to them. And you know what I say? I say, I am gonna listen to them because guess what? They're telling the truth. You can off (laughs) in a slightly more elegant way. Well, depending upon the day, really. But yeah, it's 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 a, there's so many of us who are up front, and up front is a scary place. But at the same time, I don't know that I could not do this. Do you know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I will say, and I, I don't think any survivor should feel guilty about this or any advocate should feel guilty about this, there are things I do that have nothing to do with this because they help me balance, you know? I talk about music. Well, the stuff I'm working on right now is a mixture of yeah, stuff that's related to life as a survivor and stuff that's just damn silly. Love songs for my wife. I'm going to love you till the cows come home. Stuff like that. <laughs> and I also pride myself on using unusual words in my songs. I try to get a good word and a word in it that most people don't use. Hypercritical. I got hypercritical into a song <laughs> I recently wrote about, uh, about climate change. That's an accomplishment. It's a Waltz about climate change. I don't mean to be hypercritical, but it's your own Heine you'll say. I got Heine in there too. <laughs> I'm proud of the Heine too.
0: That's fantastic. I got Heine in there. It reminds me of, you know, listening to some of Sting's songs. Like you can tell he used to be an English teacher, <laughs> right? Because he'll yes, throw yes. words and concepts in there that no one else ever puts into a song. Yeah. No, but I I think the silly stuff is fantastic. I mean, you need mm-hmm. silly. You need silly, you need fun. You know, all of us do. And part of the reason that we get stuck creatively or probably, I'm not an expert, but I'm guessing may not heal as quickly is if we think we can't go and do the silly fun things.
2: Mhm.
1: I agree 100%. There's so much healing in doing whatever just makes you happy. You know. Yeah. And that brings us back around to Doctor Who conventions and fandom and dressing up. I mean, that has been such a positive, healing thing for me. And I've done panels about it at conventions, which is awesome. It's so much so cool to do. And it's just anything that you can do, the relief, you know, the relief. Sometimes, some people i mean their thing is little house in the prairie you know my thing is 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 colombo uh or you know listening to old punk music or 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 you know working on the next cosplay piece or writing these silly little songs that i'm doing you know actually i want to talk about that for a second and how we got here to do that for a lot of years because i feel this ties into my sort of emotional development and human mm-hmm. development for a lot of years When I was in bands, I wrote the lyrics and I sang, but I kind of let other people lead the music thing and I would just catch up to them. I would figure out how to do what they wanted me to do. And I felt a little bit stifled and it was partially my own thing that I was stifled. I mean, I was doing it to myself to a degree because I wasn't being assertive. And I always had these ideas in my head, you know for like the kinds of things I wanted to do. And sometimes they would come to fruition, but sometimes there'd be no way to get anybody to understand what I was doing because I probably wasn't explaining it well. And I've been out of bands for a number of years, have been for a number of years. And this is going to be very much about the success and failure paradigm that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, Last year, toward the end of last year? No, no, it was the year before. My God, the pandemic. Um, The year before November, I had done a show called 60 Minutes of Swearing. (laughs) <laughs> and you can imagine what it was about. It was mm-hmm. about not just the social and political situation, but also about dumb stuff and just life stuff. And the show, everything I did did not land. Oh, wow. Crickets to absolutely everything. you got to keep going. You're up till the end of the show. And you're like, oh, my God. So there was one part, no, two parts of the show that actually worked. One part was... My friend Styx and I, Styx is a drummer, a percussionist. He's also my uh, tech director on the Ask a Sex Review Survivor Show. We've traveled a lot together. His name is Styx Latte. His real name is Martin Coffee, which makes it even better.
0: <laughs> I remember so,
1: Styx. Yes, good old Styx. So Styx... So, you know, I said to Six, you know, you know, since we're doing this and you play drums, you play like bongos or congas or something. Maybe we'll take some of my words because I've never stopped writing words, even though I'm not in bands anymore. I've got all these words backed up. We'll just do some of the words to some drums. We did the words to some drums. They were wildly successful. The audience absolutely loved that stuff. The other thing they loved, we had a thing called the suck jar. One of those big like cheese puff jars. Mm-hmm. And it said suck jar on the outside of it. And there were little slips of paper and said, write down something you think sucks and put it in the jar. And we would break at different parts of the show and go, so here's this, how this is going to work. I'm going to read something that sucks. Forgive my language in just a moment. I'm going to read something that sucks. And you as a, as a group are going to yell back,
2: fuck that.
1: And I get them wound up. So they did it nice and loud. And we practice and practice. And so we would read things like, you know, people that don't bring their shopping carts back.
2: Fuck that.
1: And they love that stuff. So both of those things work. So after a couple of weeks, or maybe I don't know how long I was looking my wounds. It was a while. I felt horrible. I felt like, oh, I failed, I failed, I failed, I, I failed. And, and, and I felt, you know how you feel? You feel mortified personally. You feel embarrassed and, and, and mortified by your own existence. And sometime after that, I went, wait a minute. There's these two things that work. And I called up Sticks and I'm like, Sticks, you know that thing we were doing with the drums and the voice? How about doing a whole bunch of that? And he was like, Yeah, sure. No, wait, what did you say? I don't hate anything you're saying, which I love that expression. I don't hate <laughs> anything you're saying. So we brought back the suck jar. Unfortunately, the show we were going to do together live got canceled due to the pandemic, which is totally understandable. And I respect that because I want to be healthy too. Um, but we, we continued to do this stuff sort of collaborating at a distance now. And uh, so here's this thing that's supposedly a failure, but had it not happened, I wouldn't have discovered the greatest outlet I've ever had for my words I've ever known because I can say what I want to say in the way that I want to say it. And we work together and the rhythm works out to, and I can have him throw something at me that I never would have thought of that takes me in another direction. And I can do that to him. And so now there's this new way after years of being stifled and just book piles and piles of notebooks, I can do all this stuff. And he's got the same sense of humor. So when I got Heine into a song, he was delighted.
0: <laughs> well, hope oh, wouldn't be. I mean, you know really? what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like those uh,
1: that was a failure, but it's not a failure because if we had never done it, we would have discovered these things that are fantastic that are feeding my soul, you know?
0: Yeah. And and that's really why, you know, people are so afraid of failure, but failure is not the end unless you decide that it is, mm-hmm. you know, so many great things come out of failure. I mean, there's the famous Edison quote about finding 10,000 ways that didn't work. It, you know, I mean, you just, you keep going every time, every time at the very least you learn, well, that didn't work. You may learn something else. You may, as you say, you know, I mean, you've made a great argument for not being in creative isolation mm-hmm. because you never know what. I, I mean, even random things, you know, a random word on a magazine at the grocery store checkout mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. give you an idea if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you know, it's it's own failure is only the end if you decide that you want it to be.
1: That is beautiful. I love that. I'm going to use that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Do I have to send you like a dime every time I use it? Or <laughs>
0: Well, if you want to, I won't argue with you but... okay, so take
1: We all need dimes actually, nobody's taking dimes never mind i'll sell you some I'll send you some bitcoin, even though I don't know what it is. there we go um I thought it was, i i I see bitcoin as those coins like in super Mario, <laughs> um,
0: probably about right.
1: I am so far behind the, the curve here That's okay. yeah exactly there's a there's a story that I read recently uh, you know Paul Williams, the singer Paul Williams from the seventies, yeah. He was fairly big back then. I, I've always liked him because he was always a little bit weird, and he wrote the soundtrack and was one of the performers in the movie Phantom of the Paradise, which was Brian De Palma's first direct, his directorial debut. And he was talking recently about that, and he's like, you know what? That movie was an absolute box office bomb. Critics savaged it. It was a horrible failure, as far as I could see. But then, decades later. After midnight showings, people would come up to me and say, we saw Phantom of the Paradise. My God, your songs are so amazing. What a what what an incredible show that is. And you're so amazing in it. And he's like, you know what? A failure is not a failure. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. That movie took, you know, 30 years to find its audience. And now he's being rewarded with all this wonderful feedback. So, yeah, failure is not failure. and And that winds right back into healing. Because... If I try something and it doesn't work, I haven't failed. I just need to try something else. That's hard on the days when the serotonin's low and the brain's going crazy and I'm shaking. That's hard on those days. But what I've learned about those days is to cut myself some slack. Be like, okay, so you don't make a phone call today. Okay, you don't answer the door today. Okay, you just sit there and you just deal and try to meditate or breathe or watch Columbo or whatever, (laughs) you know? Um, So it's hard. I mean, I say that failure is not failure. And I believe intellectually that failure is not failure. Don't believe for a second that I don't ever get crushed. Oh, absolutely. But I've learned to like re-examine it. Over time, and I can't immediately, sometimes you can't immediately re examine things. Sometimes you're just stuck, you're stuck mm-hmm. in that spot. And I gotta learn that that's not failure. You know, that's not failure. If in that moment I didn't know how to help myself, that's not failure. That's just trauma is deep. And you know what? Even if you're not traumatized, that's a good thing. Things may be bad right now, but they could be better later. But no toxic positivity, please. God. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Well, you know, you don't have it bad as some other people, so you should be grateful. It's it's so the whole toxic positivity thing. I know people mean well, but they need to listen when people from various communities talk about toxic positivity. It's like disabled people looking up and saying, "Look at all these stories. He was disabled and it didn't let him get in his way of getting a Nobel Peace Prize. And he get in getting her way of winning a marathon." And okay, some of us can't win a marathon or get a Nobel Peace Prize you know what? It's tough for us. Stop. Or what's the the great one? The great, the great meme. uh, The difference between having a good day and a bad day is a matter of your attitude. No, it's not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For some people, it probably is, but that's not for everybody. No, everybody's got different stuff going on. And that's, that's actually kind of, you know, what I was thinking earlier. I've been thinking I, I need to clarify what I said earlier about the idea of just forgetting it because I know that forgetting can certainly be a trauma response and I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that's ridiculous how could you possibly forget it because that happens what I do find ridiculous is the idea of somebody saying to you well just forget about it if you haven't already as a defense mechanism you forget about dropping the that heavy box on your foot last night you Mm -hmm. know just just try please sit down try to forget that tell me how it goes
1: Somebody cut off the lower part of your leg. Just forget about it and roller skate. Right. Go. Right. It's, it is a misunderstanding of what this trauma does. And when I say this trauma, I mean, you know, I've been through a certain kind of trauma. You've been through a certain kind of trauma. There's a bunch of others. It's complicated because there are people who repress. And on any given day, I'm a mix of all things. There's, there are certainly chunks that I don't remember and chunks that I remember like they're happening now. And I feel and I experience like they're happening now. I got some memories given back to me through my experience after I started doing the show that I had blocked. Not necessarily stuff I wanted to deal with at the moment, but it came along and then I was at least able to. And I was able to, as I can always do, use myself as an example, as an illustration in my show and in what I do. So every time I did the show, you know, people would ask questions about repressed memories. I say, I don't have any repressed memories. I remember absolutely everything that happened to me. My memories are repressed from when it was good, not bad. And at one point I spoke to my sister, Ruthie, on the phone and we were talking about my mom. We had a lot of problems with my mom. My mom was, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. She was brutal, but it's complicated. And we were talking, we're commiserating about how tough our growing up was. And I said, well, you know what? She may have done this, that, and the other, but at least when I told her about Harold, our abuser, she kicked him out of the house and she never let him get near us again. And there was a little bit of a silence on the other end of the phone. And uh, she oh. said, I guess you do not remember. After she kicked him out, she let him come back and take each of us alone for child visits for the next four years. Oh. And when she said that, it was like, Flood, it literally, people say floodgates. It was like floodgates. It was like a wall broke down and the water came rushing through. There had been one nightmare I would have it, I was having all for as long as I can remember. I being like eleven or twelve and being raped by my father, my stepfather, in a in, in a steam bath. And I was like, well, he left. I only saw him for a few ages of seven and eight. So I, that's I'm just projecting whatever. She said that that memory all of a sudden came forward and went. This really happened. And then a bunch of other memories of all of those years came out. And that was a tough time for me because sure. almost every day, almost daily new memories of being abused were coming out and it was unprocessed trauma, completely unprocessed trauma. And what was weird about that is I had that experience and yet still was going on stage and saying to people, I do not have <laughs> repressed memories. And I, I, I talked about this conversation in the show and then went to the questions and answers and somebody got up and said, listen, you just said you don't have any repressed memories, but what about, and I was like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <That's the laughs> definition of repressed memories, isn't it? Memories that were repressed and showed up later. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to see yourself sometimes. And I've been so gifted by people's willingness to share and help me. And that's that's absolutely incredible. But yeah, there's a, that's one of the things that this person who emailed me was telling me that you know too many people are wrongly accused and all this other stuff. Well, they all have false memories. I'm like, well, again, false memories. You might
0: want to look at the data on that one
1: because again,
0: very rare. Yeah. Well, and you know one of the things that I am hoping that as a silver lining after this delightful pandemic experience that we've all been through is that I live by myself. So I'm working from home. I really haven't seen a whole lot of people in the last year, except for mm-hmm. a couple friends that I'll meet to go out for walks and whatever. And as far as I can tell, I'm fine. And yet I also know that I have no way of knowing how this thing might have messed with me because I've lost my frame of reference you know mm-hmm. like do i remember what it's like to go into an office anymore no i mean i have this vague visual memory and whatever but it seems extremely alien so what else have i lost perspective on how else has this affected me that i haven't even begun to figure out yet because we're recording this in the middle of april so we're still pretty much inside it's still pretty much the standard mm-hmm. pandemic things people are getting mm-hmm. vaccines and whatever and And that's not just me. Right. It's all of us because we've all been affected by this. I expect that we have all been traumatized by it in some way or another to one degree or another. And I have to hope that that will mean that there's more sympathy for trauma and trauma victims coming out of this because we're all going to be sitting here going, whoa, wait, hang on. What happened to me? Mm-hmm. You know what? What mm-hmm. has changed here? Yeah. I'm not the same mm-hmm. person I was. Some of that may not be a bad thing, and some of it I may not be quite so sure about. And what do I do with that? I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that shakes out. Not that I think that people like the guy who sent you the email is mm-hmm. probably going to have a sudden awakening. Maybe, <laughs> no. maybe a tiny percentage of those people will. But I'm not holding my breath on the rest of them. But if we, as a society, come out of this with a greater empathy for trauma and a greater understanding of what Mm -hmm. it is and how it works, then that will be, I don't want to say it will be worth having gone through a pandemic, but it certainly will be a worthy side effect of having gone through one. Yeah, that's, we were
1: talking about, Christine, my wife, Christine, and I were talking about this today, as we often do, that there are a lot of lessons from the pandemic. And one of the lessons, as you're saying, that people have learned is that they themselves are susceptible to depression, they themselves are susceptible to anxiety, things they've never felt previously. Because, you know, there are these people who walk down the street and, you know, they go to they, they go to work, they go to the bar, they go home and they're fine. And it's been tough for me to reconcile that that kind of existence is out there. But it is. There's millions of people like that and good for them. But those people, the get along people that don't sit and think about things that happened to them when they were four, mm-hmm. you know, or in high school who are not gripped by that are now starting to experience anxiety and depression, fear over things. And there's anxiety over coming back, you know, Mm -hmm. because we've adjusted to a different normal. Um, I've actually had people, friends of mine that don't have any kind of trauma in their, in their background come to me to say, okay, you've been dealing with this stuff for years. What do I do when I get depressed? What do I do when I freak out and I have an anxiety attack? What do I do when I'm having what you what you said was a panic attack and I'll give them some of the techniques and all that stuff and grounding yourself and five senses and all that stuff. but in a weird way, we become the experts mm-hmm. in this, and I don't know about you, but I've certainly been mined and i i I'm more than happy to be mined for for help with that sort of thing um but yeah i mean there's there's also the we didn't realize until we did it that there were so many jobs that could have been done without going into the office. Yes. So many. And there's so many things, you know, my wife now, cause she doesn't have to commute has time to work out in the morning. She has yes. her, 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 her remote exercise class and she has time at night to do other things. And she's been, she's been cooking more. She's gotten deep into baking. She loves baking. We're both like big cooking show fans <laughs> and we're great British bake off fans. And, uh, I I, I fed her addiction to baking by giving her all kinds of books, but I gave her books that were like desserts for two because we needed to, (laughs) and she said that too, like we need to back off on like whole cakes and, you know, 18 cupcakes and stuff. Um, But um, yeah, we were talking about the fact that having this ability to have your day, not involve the stress of a commute and have your day, to be connected during the entire work day. Um, I don't know what other couples are like, but we've gotten along incredibly well. And we haven't had issues with being together all the time. Mm -hmm. And that may be a shock to some people. I don't know, but we haven't. And we've learned more about each other. Um, But this, this normal, I love this normal. I love being able to wake up, she 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 gets to do her exercise, she goes and does her work. I see her when she comes down for breaks and for lunch. I love that. I love that we have this ability to connect with each other, and it's going to be a wrench. Um, I hope that people learn the lesson that you don't need to come to the office all the time. And in fact, the car, my, my wife works, uh, she's a sustainability specialist working for a green architecture firm. So she's specifically on the front lines of making a better carbon footprint you know, f- for businesses and things like that. And uh, she understands all this stuff. So she's looked around and said, guess what? Our emissions went down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Our emissions went way down. The animals came back. I mean, literally, the, the smog over L.A. has improved since the pandemic.
0: You know? Yeah.
1: Um, there are so many benefits to this that I hope we don't forget.
0: Me too. And I think that a lot of employers are going to be really surprised if they demand that people come back. How many of them are going to quit?
1: I I agree 100%. I mean, my my, my Christy, was just telling me today about somebody two people who took early retirement rather than, you know, the possibility Mm of going back after the pandemic. They're like, well, they're going to make us come back. They've told us that when it's all over. So I'm just going to retire. Yeah. There's no need. There's no need for it. It's ridiculous. um, People should be able to spend their time outside hiking or hanging out in the backyard with their friends or traveling or whatever, because why not? I mean, (sighs) I get caught up short by people who don't seem to be able to evolve with the culture. Mm-hmm. And it frustrates me. Um, the I actually lost my best friend of many years because of this. And I'm gonna get political for a second, so here we go. When Trump was elected, we knew who he was already we knew how horrible it was going to be. Well, we didn't imagine it was going to be as horrible as it was. Okay. It was pretty damn bad, but worse than we thought. The first thing my friend, my best friend said to me after you get elected is what's with all these crazy protesters. They should just stop protesting and give the guy a chance. I'm like, he's a racist. He's a sexist. He's a misogynist. He's a predator. We know all these things about him already. What are you talking about? And as the year progressed, he was just playing the same old song. My friend, I was like, I can't, if you're, if you're gonna sit here and say there's nothing wrong with what's going on, I can't be friends with you because that's, that's about being human, being kind, you know? And it frustrates me when people that I think are people who are capable of growth are not capable of growth. So many people have reacted with just offense at the gender revolution. I got to tell you, I think it's so exciting and so cool. You know, I mean, when you learn things like I didn't learn until last few years that this gender revolution could have started in Berlin, Germany in 19 in the 1930s because they had started it. They were out and trans people were out and uh, gay people were out and they had places to meet and they had uh, a school which was, you know, studying gender issues and all this stuff. And it got smashed by Hitler. Unsurprisingly. And so now it's happening, right? And that's fantastic. They're like, well, you know, you're in your 50s, so you can't understand this stuff, right? I'm like, no, I I get it. I'm listening. (laughs) I'm listening. I hear it. It's fantastic.
0: Tell me more.
1: This is really cool. I have, um, there are trans people in my family. There are trans people in my, there's a trans uh, woman who, who was identified as male when I met her. At my first Doctor Who convention in 30 years, okay, in 2016. And she came out as trans. She changed her pronouns and her name. And I've never had a problem with her pronouns and her name because I know who she is. Mm -hmm. I also, just Google it for God's sake. I'm smart enough not to dead name someone because that's evil and just that's abuse. And I'm smart enough that I may have pictures of that person from when they identified as male. Those pictures will never be on my social media now because I respect who they are. I had, oh my God, oh Lord. <laughs> it was at a family gathering. And my family is very, very cool generally about things. And Christie's family is mostly cool but there's some really conservative people. And there was this one guy, friend of the family, who so desperately wanted to tell this trans joke, and I wouldn't cut him a break. He'd be like, So, um, so let me ask you a question. When a, when a man is turning into a woman, I interrupted and said, Well, actually, no, um, a trans woman is always knew they were a woman. They're just becoming themselves finally. They're not turning into anything. And he's like, Yeah, 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 yeah. But when a man he just kept going. I'm like, and I, I know I pissed him off and I was very happy about that, because I never <laughs> let him tell his joke. I was like, well, actually. You know, the way that works is, you know, it's it's wonderful to have, it's like, how hard is this, right? I have a nibbling now who is neither a nephew nor a niece. That's cool. Seahorse dad. I love the idea of the seahorse dad, you know, identify male, but give birth. That's so cool. <laughs> What's the great thing? Like, you know, what are boys clothes? What are girls clothes? If you're a boy and you're wearing clothes, those are boys clothes. If you're a girl and you're wearing clothes, those are girls clothes. If somebody questions if you, if you're, if you're not, if you, don't, if you don't fit into either binary, your clothes are non-binary clothes, and they're great clothes for you. If somebody gives you a hard time and tells you you're wearing the wrong clothes, their clothes are trash can clothes, and they are trash.
0: There you go. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, clothes are clothes. Exactly. You know. And you know what? Uh, clothes for guys are boring. They are. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Sometimes I really, you know, I think, boy, you have like, what, three options, and that's really about it, you know?
1: It's why I like dressing in velvet and capes.
0: Which which brings me to, I want to make sure before we run out of time, that you get a chance to talk about Doctor Who and The Third Doctor and cosplay and how that has fit into your whole journey.
1: Well, the whole thing with Doctor Who uh, started for me when I started watching the show on TV in the late 70s. And at that point, we had the third Doctor, John Pertwee, And I watched a bunch of his episodes, and then the show disappeared for a while. Then it came back, and it was Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor. And this person, this character of the Doctor, very much represented for me what I wanted to be. The Doctor was kind, caring. The Doctor was courageous. He said things like, being brave isn't about being not scared. It's about doing what you have to do anyway. He would take the time to understand alien races, not necessarily looking them as enemies. I mean, there's that sad bit, we're going to be very in Doctor Who for a second. <laughs> that sad bit at the end of the Silurians with John Pertry, the third doctor, where he is just shaking his head after the brigadier has decided to blow up the Silurian's underground home. Because they didn't try to understand. They just attacked. He was. Something that I aspired to. And I didn't have a father figure in my life because my natural father left when I was very, very little. I didn't remember him. And the guy I replaced him, my stepfather, is the one who abused me. So <laughs> things with the whole father situation did not work out very well for me. So my friend Adam, who is also a Dr. Who fan, I also got to know in the 80s said to me that the doctor was a father figure for him. And that woke my brain up to say, oh, you know, the doctor's a father figure for me. But at that point, when I first was watching Doctor Who, I had gotten to the, the, the stage in the trauma that I was just shut down. I wouldn't go outside. I was horribly agoraphobic. I was filled with panic and anxiety. Couldn't go outside the house. I spent most of my time up in my room listening to music or whatever. And I got this flyer in the mail for a Doctor Who convention because I was a member of a sci-fi club and they sent me flyers for conventions. And the convention was in Boston. I was in Clinton, Massachusetts, which is like an hour bus ride. And I looked at this and Tom Baker was going to be the guest, you know, the, the, the celebrity guest because this, this guy that I watched on TV, my doctor, this guy that I loved and that I admired and I wanted to emulate. And when would I get another chance? You know, I, I had no idea. So uh, I got myself, uh, you know, scraped up some money and I got a bus ticket. and I went to Boston to see <laughs> Tom Baker and I was terrified from the moment I stepped over the threshold <laughs> into the outside world all the time on the bus, all the time in the hotel. I'm standing in line and I'm waiting to get Tom Baker's autograph and I'm looking at my shoes and praying, praying, praying that nobody please talk to me because I don't want to. Oh, I can't. No, please don't. And as often happens in fandom, somebody started talking to me and talking to me and talking to me. <laughs> and I tried to move away from them because I was I was like, yeah, okay, cool, cool, cool. And they were like, the doctor's awesome. I'm like, yeah, the doctor's awesome. That's cool. And uh, they wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> so against my better judgment, I ended up in a conversation talking about Doctor Who and science fiction movies and TV shows and all kinds of stuff, right? And before I knew it, other people had joined the conversation. And we were all talking about all this stuff, all this stuff that my mom said nobody cared about but me, that crazy sci-fi crap. But here were all these people who were just like, let's do this now.
0: What a moment.
1: It was fantastic. And that was the beginning of me actually making friends. I didn't have any friends. Suddenly, I was starting to have friends, going to conventions, traveling, you know, further and further away from home to meet new people and different people and that to me was the breakthrough that, you know, brought me out of myself, you know? And I did that for a number of years. And uh, I started cosplaying, dressing up as the third doctor because I had two friends who were dressed up and I didn't want to be left out. You know, I was trying to stay in the group. Mm-hmm. And for the, that was my initial reason was that I was starting to feel like, oh, I'm just, they're overdoing their cosplay photo thing and I'm over here and as usual, I'm out of things. And uh. But as I did it, honestly, dressing up as this guy that I admired, it really, it filled me with more courage than I would have had otherwise. And when you're dressed up, okay, and you look cool, people come up to you and they'll talk to you. You don't have to talk to people first. They'll talk to you first. So me being emotionally stunted and socially awkward, they talk to me first. And the first thing I said was, my God, you look amazing. (laughs) And it was so cool. And, and I did that for, for quite a while. And um, then basically I I, uh, retired from conventions for something like 30 years. Cause that point, that was the point where I got into bands and other things going on and I was different community. Oh, in there too, that first period in the eighties, I started a Dr. Who fan club called the New England Time Lord Academy. And that was the weird thing. Cause like, I was the guy, I was the guy who ran the club. I was the one they were looking at for like answers. And I'm like, (laughs) But I found in my life, I'm always the guy for some reason. It's like, ask a sex abuse survivor. I'm the guy doing this. Uh, My bands, I was the guy booking all the shows and arranging everything and all that stuff. But I went away from fandom for a while. And then social media happened. And I started bumping into people I used to know who were in the club with me. And it was like 30 years, 30 some years later. And our 30th anniversary i think was coming up on the same year as the 50th or the 40th no 40 50th or whatever anniversary it was there was a major anniversary for doctor who and a major anniversary for us and they collided and so suddenly we were getting back together again and i went to that and we had a wonderful time and apparently i was the only one who went home and said i'm going to conventions again because nobody (laughs) nobody else in that group decided to but i went out i got myself new cosplay stuff i went back to conventions and guess what Everybody was still cool. And there was one wonderful difference. Back then, we all had problems. A lot of us were on medication. None of us knew it because nobody talked to each other. Now, at conventions, everybody talks about their challenges, talks about their medications, talks about therapy. And I felt so at home because I was able to blend that love of sort of community and healing together with being silly and running around in capes and <laughs> taking pictures and meeting other. There's a great thing that Adam Savage of uh, Mythbusters said, because he is into cosplay as well, has been for many years before even he was ever doing anything like Mythbusters. He said the great thing about cosplay is it's it's mutually agreed creativity.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: You go and you dress up as the third doctor, right? People have agreed that you're the third doctor. So they dress as Joe or they dress as the brigadier. And your reality becomes the way those characters interact with each other, augmented by reacting to each other as human beings, as well as who you are. So you share this reality and you create new realities with it. And that is so potent. And having people come to me at conventions, youngins, saying, You know, I see you're running a sex abuse survivor thing, and I have some things I'd like to talk about. And would you be okay if we talked about it sometime? Yeah, cool. A lot of people have been their first, their first person to talk to about it. And it happens in fandom, and it happens online, and it happens everywhere. I had a friend who I'd been in improv class was, which is a, a sort of actor-performer friend, and he had moved away. He wrote to me recently. We've known each other for like probably 10 years now. He said, I just found out that someone in my family circle is a survivor, and I'm not supposed to know because their significant other told me, but I'm not supposed to know. And what should I do to support them without saying that I know? I said, well, first of all, you're absolutely right. You're not supposed to know. You'll destroy the confidence that this person has in you forever if you say anything. But I said, you know what? Here's some things that are helpful to me. Certainly here's, I gave him, I said, you know what? If he wants to talk to me, if, you know, the person who knows wants to ask him to talk to me, if you want to filter to the person who knows things about therapy, things about grounding, things about healing if you want to just send him to look at all my videos so he doesn't actually have to talk to a person yet you know and so that connection was about improvisation but now that connection is i heard back from him the other day and he said that his son is now going into therapy his part the person that he knows is now going to therapy because of the way he was able to talk to him and be there for him without revealing that he knew. Mm -hmm. so he's this person has started healing So there's all these wonderful connections. And there's so many people who got me started healing, you know, Dr. Blair and people in fandom and friends and Christy. Oh my God. I know we have to wrap up soon, but I want to really quickly tell, tell a little story about Christy and me. We got married and bought a house the same year. We moved out here 2006 in the summertime. And by fall, by October, we got married on our front porch which was so cool because we're in the place for our anniversary. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. here. It's right here. And there's such texture to that. It's wonderful. Back in 2006, I was not in therapy. Hadn't been in therapy for decades. I'd given up on therapy because I never seemed to get better. So I figured, mm, if I'm not all better, then what's the point? And she saw me go through these things where I would tear myself to shreds and say that I was an awful person and a terrible person and a useless person and a failure. And just bang my I mean literally bang my head against the wall and she's like I, I don't know how what to do for you I can be here for you but I have no idea how to actually help you. Will you for me and for us get back into therapy? And because she did that and phrased it like that, framed it like that, I got back into therapy and that was the trauma informed therapist Dr. Blair. That was what led to doing Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor. That's what led to this whole journey helping other people find a platform connecting people together All of this stems from that moment of her saying, I don't know how to help you, but will you try therapy again for me? So I owe her her everything.
0: That's phenomenal. Really, that's amazing because so many people wouldn't even know how to say that the right way. Kudos to her for sure. And to Mm -hmm. you, I mean, you know, you're the one who did the work and still does the work.
1: Well, you know what's amazing about the work is that, yeah, I do the work, but we also do the work. She and I also do the work. Because one thing she said early on is if you want to talk, I'm here to talk. And so when things would come up in therapy, I, you know, it's important to have somebody to talk to who isn't your spouse or your significant other, or your brother or sister, or whatever, because there's going to be times you need to just let out everything. And that's, I think that's really important for people to have, to have that outlet. I'm not telling everybody what to do. I'm just saying, I think it's an important outlet and very helpful. But uh, she was always willing to talk about stuff. And the prime example of that has to be dissociation. Where, you know, dissociation is when you basically just separate from reality because what's going on around you is too difficult to bear. And I became a a knee-jerk dissociator because I had done that as a child to survive, and it became a thing where I dissociated randomly, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether there was stress. And I would dissociate sometimes during our conversations. And then I would say something back to clearly show I didn't know what she had said, and she understandably was like, you're not listening to me. Well, we had a conversation about dissociation after a few therapy sessions. And she was actually willing to agree to me being able to say, I'm sorry, I dissociated. Could you repeat that, please? And that was a no fault zone. Mm-hmm. It's continue to be. So that's, you know, that's bringing her into the therapy and bringing her into the healing is that's how it's helped. We keep it all up front.
0: Again, I'm not an expert on any of this, but it sure sounds to me like that's got to be a whole heck of a lot healthier than the alternative.
1: Mm-hmm. Too many people are isolated, and i i I feel for them, and I do what I can, you know, but
0: well, it sounds like to me like you're doing a lot, which is fabulous so and I want to make sure that we will get your your links so that everybody can check out the videos and check out the performances and I know you do fundraisers, and I definitely mm-hmm. want to include links for those because obviously this is work that needs to be done and needs to be supported and I'm really glad that you're doing it and I, I just I love the whole story about how all of this it all comes together in such a fascinating Mm -hmm. and productive way. It's really cool. Thank
1: you. I I truly appreciate that. And thank you for supporting what I do. Thank you for giving me a voice to talk about what I do. And thank you for being basically a fellow warrior in all of this, you know, we're both making a difference. And I'm very proud of you as well for the things you're doing and the way you're giving people a voice. So thank you.
0: Thank you. And then thank you for coming on the show. That's our show. I'm so grateful to Michael for sharing his story and his work with us. I have all the links to his work, including ways to support him, in the show notes at fycuriosity.com, and I really hope you'll check them out. As always, thank you for listening, and if you know someone who needs to hear this episode, I hope you'll share it with them. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.